Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. If you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to turn to Mark 7, and we'll be looking at a couple of different passages. Uh, They're all a little bit strung together with a particular theme this morning, and uh, as we talk, that theme will become a little more evident. And so if you're willing and able, let me invite you to stand in honor of God and his word as we read, starting in Mark 7 and into part of Mark chapter 8. Starting in Mark 7:31, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue, and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So then we go over to chapter 8, starting in verse uh, 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. There's a lot here. It's all God's word. And he's given it all to us because he wants us to know it and to know him. So let's pray and ask him to bless us. Father, we come uh, this morning 
to hear about Jesus. That's what I want to talk about. That's why people are gathered here is to hear about Jesus. And we pray that you would be pleased to cause that to happen. Um, That you would pour out your spirit. That you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And that we would see Jesus and have a sense of his lovely face, his countenance, his work, his intercession at your right hand. Would you bless us? And Lord, would you bless me? I'm a broken, sinful person. And you've given me the task of handling and speaking about holy things. So I pray that you would be pleased to enable me to speak so that the people here may encounter you. Bless us and be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. You got to put back on my glasses. There we go. So when uh, I, this is like making me dizzy, I don't know if I can wear these for a while. Uh, when uh, when my mother passed away, I got to spread my leg. I'm, I, I like everything spinning with the, I just can't even wear them. I was going to wear these for the whole like illustration, but I can't even do it. Um, I should have practiced at home, I guess, with these. So uh, these are my glasses from about the seventh or eighth grade, and my vision only got worse. So from, this is a negative 11 or something like that prescription. Yeah, you're, you're shocked. You know what that is. Um, I met a guy several years ago who was a lens grinder for a living. So he made eyeglasses, and we were working out in the gym. And I said, hey, how about, uh, have you ever encountered a negative 11? And he did the same face. And he said, I don't encounter those very often. I said, yeah, that's, that's my prescription on my glasses, which means I had Coke bottles growing up. And it also meant that growing up, that there were experiences that I couldn't fully enjoy because you know, I could only see with these on, and, and in, once I took them off, literally, this is as far as I could see. So I was blind as a bat growing up. And so there were experiences I just couldn't enjoy the same, and one of those was going to the beach. And so we always went to the beach growing up, but when I was in the water, I didn't want to wear my glasses because if they came off in the water and we couldn't find them in the ocean, that's it for my whole vacation. I can't see anything, you know, this far from my face. So when we would get in the water and play and throw ball in the water, I couldn't really participate. Uh, when, there was a do- when dolphins would swim, you know, 30 yards out from us, not sharks, but dolphins, swim out 30 yards from us, I couldn't see them. When people would talk about the sailboat that's off in the distance, I couldn't see it. And so there were just parts of the experience that I could not enjoy fully because I was at least partially blind to those things. I couldn't fully enter into it. And as we step into this passage, can I put these down? Do y'all want to see these again just before I put them away? So... <laughs> Wow, like literally, okay, I forgot that, so I'm going to set these here. These are for show and tell later. Don't walk off of those, so they're, they're an artifact. Um, that's what this passage is about. There are experiences of the Christian life, benefits of the Christian life, understanding of the Christian life that become diminished, and we can't fully enter into them because of a problem that is found in us. And so this morning we're talking about spiritual blindness. And we'll talk about what that is in just a second. Um, So in this text, Jesus performs two miracles that end up being what we might call parabolic uh, miracles, which means, yes, he did heal people in the midst of the miracle. Yes, his love was poured out in healing these people, but attached to these miracles is also a teaching opportunity. So as we read through uh, the passage where he's talking about the leaven of the Pharisees and, and the disciples mistake what's going on, they think it's about bread, but it's about something else that we'll talk about in a little bit. Jesus 
talks about the, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 as if there was some lesson or other they were supposed to take from it. There was something they were supposed to see in those miracles, particularly about him. It wasn't just, they weren't just miracles that helped people. There was a lesson to be learned. And so what we're talking about this morning is spiritual blindness, the problem, the reason, and the remedy for it. So let's kind of dig into this. What is spiritual blindness? Well, spiritual blindness is not ignorance, not simply not knowing something. It's about a, a, an inability that we have spiritually because of our sin. Spiritual blindness occurs whenever someone is unable to recognize or see God, to acknowledge the activity of God, or to understand the message of the gospel so that they can embrace it. They may hear it, they may see it clearly, but cannot respond to it. And so there's a blind man here uh, that Jesus heals. Um, and this man becomes kind of a picture of spiritual blindness for us. And Jesus ties this back to his apostles in verse 18, where he says, Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear. So he's tying this to the two parables, the, the two parabolic uh, miracles that he's already done. And particularly the blind man comes into play here. Because there are two different types of blindness that he's suffering from. The first is a complete blindness. He doesn't see anything. So uh, this is symbolic of the Pharisees. Mark chapter 8, verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. So they were like the blind man who couldn't see who Jesus really was at all. They couldn't even see him as a good person. So in fact, in, in Matthew 15, Jesus refers to the Pharisees as blind guides. So he's saying they're the blind ones here. They can't see anything. And then there's a partial blindness in here. In Mark 8, 18, it ties together, having eyes do you not see. And in this case, he's talking about his his apostles, his disciples, his followers, they can see Jesus perform all of these miracles. They hear what Jesus is saying in the main, but there's a partial blindness for them because they don't see fully. So we looked at a passage last week with a woman who saw fully. She called Jesus son of David. She called him the Messiah. That's a messianic term. So she saw Jesus more clearly than his own disciples did because they're experiencing some sort of partial blindness. So it's not ignorance it's not simply that there's no, not enough information. It can be right in front of you and you not see it. So I had a friend who illustrated this a couple of years ago. His name is Tom. And he had, as a, a, one of his children, was uh, basically more nearsighted than I was growing up. And so one day uh, Tom came in and he had a bag of candy for his kids. And he gave his older, he tossed a jelly bean to his oldest child and to his middle child. And then to the third child who couldn't see, like I think even with corrective lenses could not see very well, Tom said, I'm going to make this easy. I'm not going to throw it. So he just put it on the table right in front of his son. And his son just kept looking at him. So Tom kind of looked at the candy and he wanted to be the good dad. He said, just pointed to it. And the son still looked at him. So Tom took the jelly bean and he slid it closer to his son. And his son saw the, that kind of movement out of his eye, but he still couldn't see the jelly bean. So Tom came over and kind of pushed his son's head down towards the jelly bean. And, oh, a jelly bean! And so he popped it into his mouth, right? That child, that particular son, needed this coaxing to bring him to understand what gift was really being given to him by his father. 
And it's similar as we come into this passage, is Jesus asked his apostles, his disciples, a series of questions in verses 14 to 21 of chapter 8. And in verse 17, he says, do you not yet perceive or understand? And in verse 21, he says, again, do you not understand? Now, he's not chiding them, and he's not mocking them, he's not belittling them, but he's doing that process of pushing it closer to them and saying, there's something here. You need to pay more attention to this. There's a jelly bean on the table. So the disciples are like the man who, who's halfway healed. He's, they see people, he sees people, but they look like trees. That's his frame of reference. This is, the, this is what they look like to me. He doesn't yet see them with clarity. And so what we see here is there's the complete blindness of the Pharisees who are just hostile to Jesus. But then there's the partial blindness, partial spiritual blindness of his apostles that see but don't see clearly. And so what that means is uh, this is a problem for all of us. This is not just a problem. This is not just a malady for the Pharisees. It's a, it's a fallacy. It's a, a malady even for the followers of Jesus. Sometimes we don't see very clearly. Uh, but, so that's the problem. We all struggle with this in some way, shape, or form. And so what's the reason for spiritual blindness? Well, one is, uh, we'll simply say this, spiritual blindness is an internal condition of the heart. It's us. It's not the information. It's, it's us. There's something about us. So the Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. You know, give us a sign. Show us this. As if they had not asked before. And so Jesus had performed miracle after miracle. Um, but they come to Jesus and say, show us a sign because we think you're a problem. Jesus, of all people, they think is a problem. A problem. But when you read about Jesus and you talk to people who really understand who Jesus is, Jesus is a fantastic person, a captivating person, a solid person. When he called Peter and the other disciples, they had no idea he was God in the flesh. They didn't realize we're following God. They didn't have a, a burning bush. They didn't have an angel appear. They didn't see a fiery chariot. They just had Jesus. They didn't know that he was God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity. So they experienced him as a human person, a human person with whom God was walking daily, who walked with God, who knew God in a way that nobody else did. But they didn't really understand who, the identity of who he was. So his kindness and his gentleness, his wisdom and forthrightness, his mercy and compassion, his insight and authority... He was an absolutely compelling person. That's all they had to go on, just him and what they saw and heard and experienced. They just had him, and it was something that they found to be riveting, compelling, and mesmerizing. So that when Jesus called them to follow, they appeared to see it as the opportunity of a lifetime. I can follow Jesus. So significant was that that it was worth dropping their livelihoods and their prospects to follow this person. So people flocked to Jesus because he used his power for good. He used it to heal, to feed, and to rescue. Jesus, the man, drew a crowd, and this is before they realized this is God in the flesh, the Messiah. John Knox said this about Jesus. He said, no one else holds or has held the place in the heart of the world which Jesus holds. Other gods have been as devoutly worshipped. No other man has been so devoutly loved. And we see that in this passage. It's kind of odd, isn't it? Then Jesus sticks his fingers in this guy's ears, and, and some of that's odd. He spits and then touches the man. That's odd to us. Until you think about this man is, uh, there's no American Sign Language. There's no ASL. And so Jesus is coming to this person, and he's communicated 
very tenderly, this is what I'm going to do. Heal and heal. And the idea of the saliva, there's a, there was some, Jesus may have been drawing on some of the, the superstitions that were going on that day and age. People believed that the, the spittle of a righteous holy man could bring healing. So in some way, he's using signs to communicate to this man what he's doing. So this man can understand Jesus is here and he's doing these things for me. And so Jesus finally looks up to heaven and says, Ephatha, and this man can hear and he can speak. So Jesus is identifying with this man. Uh, now, what's interesting about this and the, this whole episode, this exchange, is pretty much any commentary you read is going to point you back to uh, Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, because it's talking about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ. And, it, and it's saying that when the Messiah came, it says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So in this way, these men, this, these Pharisees who knew the Old Testament, should have been able to look and say, wait a second, he's doing what the passages say about the coming of the Messiah. You know the old phrase, right? Walks like a duck, talks like a duck, quacks like a duck, must be a duck. Walks like a Messiah, talks like the Messiah, heals like the Messiah, he must be the Messiah. Yet, the Pharisees couldn't see it. They couldn't acknowledge it. They couldn't even acknowledge that Jesus was a good person. They were just completely blind to it because there was something in their way. And Jesus tells his disciples to beware the yeast of the Pharisees. The yeast of the Pharisees. What is yeast? What, what, what's the image that he's using here? He's, it's often used in Scripture as a sign of corruption. But what it's mainly getting at is yeast is something that permeates and affects the whole bunch. And as you look through the scriptures, at what, because it doesn't say exactly what the, in this passage what the yeast of the Pharisees is, but Jesus elsewhere talks about it. So in Matthew's gospel, uh, it's their teaching. The teaching of the Pharisees is, their, is the, the yeast, the leaven. And then in Luke's gospel, he talks about the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees being hypocrisy pretending at religion when it's not really true of their hearts. Their hearts are far from God, but with their mouths they praise him. Uh, in the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians, it's actually ceremonial righteousness that we keep the law. Circumcision is what makes us right with God. So there's a legalism that's there. So it, it can be any number of things, but I want you to recognize that when he's talking about the yeast and he's talking about the leaven that's here, he's talking about something that's on the inside of a person. There was something about them on the inside. So when it comes to the leaven of the Pharisees and it's their teaching, it's ideas. It's things inside of them that, that they embraced and there's something about them that's getting in the way of God. And so if they, uh, and what he's saying to the apostles is it's not just true of the Pharisee, one person, he's saying it's the Pharisees. So it can spread. The ideas can spread and become viral among all of us and begin to influence us and to affect us. So it can affect the entire community. So in fact, all of, all of us have uh, succumbed to this in some way, shape, or form. As there is something that's gotten inside of us that keeps us from experiencing the glory and the grace and the goodness 
of God. So in Galatians chapter 5, verse 2, we read, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. And he asks them, what has happened to your joy? What has happened to the blessing of the Christian life that you're experiencing? He's saying when you go into that works righteousness, it has a negative impact on you. So what he means by that is you have an alternative commitment, an alternative belief system that gets inside of you and prevents you from seeing Jesus. So there's a uh, spiritual blindness is caused not simply by not having knowledge. It's, by ha it's caused by having something in your life that has replaced Jesus for you. Now, you would have experienced that this morning a little bit if these, char these chairs in here had armrests. Because when you get on a plane or when you go to a movie theater, when people sit down in their armrest, people, as soon as they sit down, they take over the armrest. And they make it clear, if you're going to sit here beside me, you're going to have to have your shoulders hunched up, your elbows touching, and don't even think about taking my armrest. So you wait for the opportune time when they lean over to get something out of their purse or off the floor, and then you take it, right? <laughs> is, that just, is that just my wife who does that? It's, not, it's just me. It's me. So we, we take it over because you can't occupy the same space. If you have kids, you know that two objects do not occupy the same space at the same time, right? If they're both running down the hall, there will be tears, right? This is what he's talking about here, is when there's something that gets in the way of Jesus, it displaces Jesus so that Jesus, who is supposed to be everything, becomes more and more like nothing to us because something else takes the place. So let me give you some examples of that to help you visualize this. One is uh, things that take the place of Jesus. Sometimes it's, it's, it's beliefs, it's things on the inside. One of those things are cultural beliefs that we have, but most of us don't recognize that we have. That's what a culture is. It's a pervasive worldview understanding, a pervasive belief system about the nature of the world. And so we all have that. And because it's pervasive, it's constant, it's, in, it's in, said intensely, it feels like it must be true. If I hear it enough times from enough people with enough intensity, that has to be true, right? So if you look at the United States right now, a lot of people are deconstructing their faith in Jesus, and it's being replaced not with Islam, not with Hinduism, but mainly with expressive individualism, which is the predominant belief system in the United States. Most people here do not deconstruct to Islam or some other religion, they deconstruct to this belief system, right? If you were in um, you know, the, the Middle East, you wouldn't have grown up with American, with a, like, a Christian understanding or Americanized Christian understanding. You would have grown up with a Muslim understanding of the world. And because that would be pervasive for you, you would just assume this is what's true. This is what's real. So some of that for some people, and maybe even for the Pharisees here in this passage, they grew up with a belief system, or they have consciously entered into a belief system that displaces Jesus for them, and it makes it hard for them to see Jesus at all because they have a belief system that's already present. So that's a cultural thing. But there's another one that I'm going to talk about for just a second, and, and sometimes that's an experiential thing. Something happens in our lives, even if we profess to be a Christian, something happens in our lives, and we find ourselves angry at Jesus. We find ourselves angry at God. We find ourselves angry at other people, and that affects the way that we approach God and approach the Christian faith. So let me use myself as an example for this, unless you'd rather hear an example of Rebecca. So I'm just kidding. Um, 
So uh, several years ago, something happened uh, in my life that was very hurtful. Uh, it happened in a church. And at that point, that became the framework by which I viewed the Bible, was the hurt that I had received from other people who professed to be Christians. And so when I would read the Bible, and I had, I had this period of time in my life after my father died, I went through this period of like really uh, spiritual growth and a sense of intimacy and closeness with God. And so I was really enjoying this. But when this event happened, and I was so angry at these men, whenever I read the Psalms, which were kind of like I swim through the Psalms, that's my prayer life, is largely through the Psalms. I couldn't read the Psalms because there are so many Psalms that talk about the wicked people who are pursuing David or pursuing God's people. And so that's all I could see. I couldn't see the grace of God. I couldn't see the glory of God. I couldn't see the truth of God. All I could see were these men staring at me and just feeling that anger coming up at them. So something else, an experience I had been through, was displacing for me, being able to commune with God, to really see the grace of God, the goodness of God, and seeing the providence of God that he took me through that and ushered me through that for my own benefit. Does that make sense? Right? So we can all do this. So it's, it's, there's a cultural, there's an experiential, but there's also a, just kind of a distortion of really good things in our lives that all of a sudden can become not just good things, but ultimate things, and that's the, that's the grid by which we look at and see the world around us and everybody else. But it replaces Jesus and his grace to us. I had a friend several years ago who was in uh, a, a mercy ministry. So that's what he did for his life. He worked with mercy ministry and uh, loved Jesus, was a good preacher, uh, and he, yeah, I can't say much more about it. Some of you might figure out who he is. And uh, eventually, that became just the way he saw other people. So people who were uh, struggling, his heart went for them. But people who weren't struggling, who had no issues like that in their life, who were not helping, he was so angry and judge them and condemn them because why aren't you doing what I'm doing? This is the biggest need that's out there. Where are you in the midst of this? So he just got angrier and angrier and eventually burned, burned up and burned out and got out of ministry because he was so angry with the church and with other people as a result of that. He forgot why he was doing that in the first place. So a good thing displaced Jesus and eventually replaced Jesus in his life. And it can be anything, right? We're going to be coming up in an election uh, cycle coming up pretty soon. We're actually beginning this whole thing. Do you watch a lot of news cycle? Do you, do you find yourself getting, getting angrier and more frustrated and losing the, losing the reality that Jesus is in control? And no matter who's elected, Jesus is the king. And no matter what happens in the United States, those who belong to Jesus are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, right? He's one. I'm going home. I get to go be with him. That's fantastic. Yeah, I'm concerned about things. I'm praying for it. I'm speaking to my neighbors. I want to be a light for Christ here, but I don't have to be angry at everybody because that's not ultimate. Christ is. And so I'm able to see this clearly. So, you know, mercy ministry, uh, doing the right thing in the political cycle, all those things can become ultimate things and really displace Jesus for us. Another thing that can do it is rules. And so what happens is we begin to go to the Bible looking to find rules that we're supposed to keep or finding rules that other people outside of the church are not keeping. And we get angry at other people for not keeping these rules, right? 
We see this. I do this. You do this. Um, but if you're really being honest about that and you're looking at the rules, you find that uh, eventually you start looking at yourself and you realize, I don't feel free. I don't feel joyful. I don't feel loved by God. I just feel like I'm not doing all of the things that I think the Bible's telling me I'm supposed to be doing. And I better try harder to do them. John Newton has this great quote about that, and he shows us that kind of guilt and shame that's associated with that. It's not really healthy. He was writing this to a friend who was struggling with kind of this perverse guilt and saying Jesus' blood is not good enough to cover this. So Newton said this. He, he wrote, he said, You say you feel overwhelmed with guilt and a sense of unworthiness. Well, indeed, you cannot be too aware of the evils inside of yourself, but you may be, indeed you are, improperly controlled and affected by them. You say it is hard to understand how a holy God could accept such an awful person as yourself. You then express not only a low opinion, opinion of yourself, which is right, but also too low an opinion of the person, work, and promise of the Redeemer, which is wrong. You complain about sin, but when I look at your complaints, they are so full of self-righteousness, unbelief, pride, and impatience that they are little better than the worst evils you complain of. So what he's saying is this, there's a self-righteousness that is in that. And what he's communicating back to his friend is, look, Jesus took the place that we deserved so that we could take the place that only he deserved. He went to the cross and died for our sins, all of them, so that our sins wouldn't be borne by us at all. Jesus has paid it all. And so we come in freedom and joy saying, whatever sin I've committed in the past, whatever struggles I face in the present or the future, the blood of Christ is sufficient to cover even that for me. And there's freedom in that for us. So that's the problem and, and the reason for, let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the remedy for spiritual blindness. So what is the remedy uh, for spiritual blindness? It's to reverse the order. Because we end up looking at the world and, uh, through a particular lens. If the lens you're looking at, like the Pharisees here, is their own self-importance, then they looked at Jesus and said, he's, there's something wrong with him. He's a problem. But if the order begins to be reversed and you begin to look at yourself through the lens of the gospel, that changes the way that you see yourself and your need. It also changes the way that you look at the world. So the key is saying, I've got to move Jesus back into that center place. Some of, this just popped in my head. But I'm going to run with it for just a second. Uh, having grown up going to the ophthalmologist, you know when he puts on those big elephant glasses on you and you know, you're looking through this thing and it's on your head? And I think about Brian Regan when I do this because Brian, which is clear, one or two, one or two. You know that thing? And uh, Brian Regan is really funny on this because he, he feels like it's some sort of exam for his soul and he can never tell which one's clearer or not, right? Which one's clearer, one or two? I don't know, they're the same, I don't know. Okay, anyway, so I popped my head. But here's the point. At some point, there's this where in the process, it's all fuzzy for me. And then he changes the diopter from the last patient to me. And he clicks it, click, 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 click. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, wow, that's in focus right there, right? Jesus is the diopter. He's, he's the lens by which we see everything clearly. Any other lens, and we cannot see clearly. Jesus is the only one. So this is from a, a writer by the name of Eric Alexander. He said, the secret to Christian living is absolutely basic. 
Jesus Christ for me is the key to my justification. And Jesus Christ in me is the key to my growth in grace and Christian progress. But it is Jesus Christ from beginning to end. So what we have to do is reverse that process and see that change. And sometimes Jesus just has to step in and do that for us. Uh, other times he gives us tools. Let me talk about both those things real quick. First one, Jesus just steps in and changes it. So I'm going to tell you a story I heard this week. It's from a, a, an author by the name of Beckett Cook, and he wrote a book called Change of Affection. And this is his story. Uh, he grew up in a Catholic home, and when he was very young, he began to have this uh, awareness within him that he was attracted to people of the same sex. So as he got older and older in his life, he began to uh, express this to people that he thought were, were safe. So a friend in high school and a friend in college. And he said uh, eventually uh, when he was living in Tokyo, Tokyo of all places, his roommate's friend from back in the United States came and he was also gay and they fell in love. And so he ended up going back to uh, the United States and he had a group of friends that were in the gay community. And they decided they wanted to do things that mattered with their lives. They wanted to do something outstanding. They wanted to excel and to enjoy these great things in life. And so they had a vision for what they wanted to be. And what he ended up wanting to do is to work in Hollywood, to be a script writer and, and to be an actor. That didn't pan out so well for him. But what he found was that he was very good at stage design. So he would design stages for productions. In fact, when you saw, probably in the past, if you've seen like the catwalks where these models were walking down, he might have designed one of those. And so that's what he did, is he designed these stages for various things. And so one day, uh, they're, they just had this big fashion show. He's at somebody's house, uh, Stella McCartney. Do you all know that name? So she's in the fashion world. And uh, he was kind of name-dropping all the people who were there on this particular day. And uh, he said, while he's sitting there and he's watching this lavish thing, and people are celebrating their status and celebrating their beauty and celebrating their achievements and their wealth and the beautiful, their beauty... He's sitting there, and he said, this strange sensation came over him. He said, it all felt empty. All of it felt, he's at the pinnacle, everything he ever wanted. He's with the movers and shakers, and he said, it all felt empty. And he said, he, he didn't use this word, but as I listened to him describe it, it was almost like he had a panic attack. It's because he had this sense, this is not what life is about. But what is it about? I thought it was about this. I've achieved it, but now what is life about? So he he said he ghosted the party, went off, didn't tell anybody he was leaving. He was just so disturbed by this whole thing. He said, fast forward six months later. He's in L.A. He goes into uh, this coffee shop with a friend. And his friend is gay and his friend is an atheist, like he would say he was at that point. He's gay and he's an atheist. He said basically in his mind, Christianity was just a bunch of fairy tales. So he goes into this coffee shop. And he and his friend sit down and they, they hear this conversation behind, kind of off to the side. And he looks over. And there are two Bibles that are open on the table. And he said, I had never seen an open Bible in L.A. in my adult life. Never seen this. So he's a little bit intrigued and probably a little bit eavesdropping. And his friend was a little bit more, to, he, he liked to poke the bear. You know, he liked to stir up a little trouble. So he made a comment to the people beside them. And, you know, they just, I, I don't know what kind of interchange there was. But eventually, Beckett got up the courage to say, is that a Bible on the table? And they said, Yes. And he said, are you Christians? And they said, yes. And then he said, he asked, 
what do you believe? And so these guys shared with him the gospel with, these, with, a, with this gay atheist man in this coffee shop in L.A. And so at the end of the discussion, Beckett is intrigued by this. And he asked what he said was like the million-dollar question. He said, does your church believe that homosexuality is a sin? And the guy said, well, yeah, we believe that the Bible teaches that homosexuality is a sin. And Beckett said that five years before, he would have taken his coffee and just thrown it right, right in the guy's face. He said his response that day was, huh. So they invited him to come to church with him the next Sunday. I don't, it wasn't like a hill song. I'd never heard of the church where it was that he went. But he said as he walked in, they were playing uh, worship music. And the worship band was up front. They were playing the music. And he, he went in. And uh, he said he had this response when he walked in. It's like, oh, Christian worship music. I forgot about this. And uh, he said, but it was actually pretty good. It, clearly, Joe was not there. And uh, <laughs> so he walked in and he sat down. And after a, a little bit of time of people singing and everything, the pastor came up and he said, he just talked about Jesus and the gospel. And I was on the edge of my seat listening to what he was saying. And at the end, he didn't invite anybody up for like an altar call, but he said, there are people around the room who are willing to pray with you if you will come up and pray. And so worship bands started playing again. He's sitting in his seat and he's thinking, do I go forward? The people who invited me, they're probably watching to see what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. So he just finally decided, I'm going to get up. So he got up and went to the front where this guy was there. And he said, I don't know what, what I believe, but I'm here. And the guy said, let me pray for you. And Beckett said it was this pretty intense prayer. It seemed to go on for a long time, but he was just wondering, how is this guy coming in close and praying for this gay? How is this straight white Christian praying for this gay atheist guy? So after the prayer, he went back and he sat down. And he's listening to the music. And he said, all of a sudden, it was like God pulled back a curtain and he could see. And he said, palpably, he could he could detect the presence of God there with him. And it was as if, as if God said to him, I am God. Jesus is my son. Today I'm forgiving your sins and welcoming you into my kingdom. And so Beckett said in the middle of this big auditorium, he just started like ugly crying. And he's just sobbing and retching and making all these horrible noises. And he said he was crying, one, because of God's love. But he said he was also crying for his sin because he recognized homosexuality is a sin, and this has been my lifestyle for this long. I've chosen to not have anything to do with God for all of these years so I could pursue this, but now I have God. I have to put that away from me. So he's crying, not, not grief for his sin, but a recognition of how deep his sin went, and he said people were coming up to him saying, are you all right? Are you, do we need to call somebody to get you? And he said, no, it's fine. So he went home, and he's in, he, he took a nap because that was a pretty emotional experience. And he said God showed up again in the same way in, the, in his bedroom. And he said he started sobbing again, but he prayed and said, Okay, Lord, this is it. You have my life. I belong to you. I'm going to follow you. So he, at this point, started reading his Bible voraciously, started listening to Tim Keller sermons online, everything he could get his hands on. He went to seminary, and he wrote a book about his experience of God changing his heart, and the book is called A Change of Affection. He's a great picture of what we're talking about, right? Something had displaced Jesus. This is, this is all I need. And then Jesus slowly pushed that aside, so 
He could see that there's a problem here. And then Jesus came in and took center stage, first place in his heart and in his life. What happened was it reversed the flow. And we need that. Now, for some of us, walk with Jesus for a long time, but we, we experience something similar where something displaces Jesus in our lives. But the, the gospel gives us the same resources that it gave Beckett. We see who Jesus is. So when we, we start looking at what the scripture says, we recognize that Jesus is not just the way that we enter into a right relationship with God. Jesus is my joy. Jesus is my peace. Jesus is my delight. Jesus is my treasure. So all those things that we might struggle with in life, Jesus displaces those and says, no, I'm, I'm here. I'm first place. So let me give you an example of that. I love in Philippians chapter 4 where he talks about not worrying, but in everything by prayer and supplication, presenting our request to God. Um, what he's saying is we don't pray that God would simply give us peace, but that God would be our peace in the midst of that. So six ways real quick. Jesus is our peace. Number one, no matter what I go through, Jesus is with me. Number two, he has a plan that includes everything that I face, even the hard things that I face. Three, hardship in the world is temporary. It doesn't last. Number four, there is a mandatory happy ending to life that Jesus has secured for me. No matter what happens here, I am guaranteed that the happiest day of my life will not be found in this life. It will be found with him. Number five, I can never lose what truly matters. And six, whatever I lose, I will get back better than whatever it was that I lost. Six. Now, I know you're going to have to go back and listen to that. Okay, so if you want my notes, I'll send you my notes on those six things. But I was, ref I was reflecting this week on how true that is, how important that is. Um, a guy I'd only met one time, but I knew really well because I'd listened to his sermons. I'd read his books. I'm reading his bi a biography of his life right now. Passed away this past week. A guy named Tim Keller. And he has had a huge impact on lots and lots of people. And death is one of the scariest things that we face in this life. And, and the grief that we face with the loss of a loved one is one of the most difficult things. But even as he was dying, he reminded me and reminded so many people that death has a perspective in the gospel. It's a beaten enemy. It it cannot keep its hold on us because it didn't keep its hold on him. He conquered it. So this is what he, he, he wrote about his death. He said, grieve with hope. Wake up and be at peace. Laugh in the face of death and sing for joy at what's coming. If you have Jesus Christ by the hand and he's got you by the hand, you can sing. If you have Jesus, you have it all. A Christian's faith is a deep change, first and foremost, as a disposition towards him. Christianity is not about moralism. It's not about ministry. It's not about discipline. It is first and foremost about believing that Jesus is good and worth following. He's worth hearing and obeying. He's worth trusting and hoping. He's worth delighting in and identifying with. He's worth anticipating and daydreaming about. He's worth talking to and pursuing and thanking and cherishing. If I didn't have him, I would be lost. If I didn't have him, I couldn't see. But now that I have him, I'm no longer lost. And now that I have him, I can see.
Let's pray. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.